Grab your Bibles and head on over to the book of James, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 uh, through 5. Just, you know, when you get there, put your finger in it. Uh, we'll come back to it in a minute, but I had planned on preaching 18 verses. That's just not going to happen today. But God is good, amen? Hey, a lot going on this week, huh? I think some of you know the depth of what I'm speaking of. And, and uh, one of the things that I asked the Lord to help me with today uh, just if you can put in view a lot of the happenings uh, in our community this past week, is that I would still remain faithful to the text, that I would um, not get caught up maybe in my own emotions, or, but I would still at the same time honor the Lord uh, through this word, that the point of the text should be the point of the sermon. And then also, with God's help, to be able to touch on some of those subjects that you might be thinking of uh, this morning, but do it in a way that would honor the Lord. So, that's my aim this morning. So the sermon title this morning is, is titled, Our Pain and Hurt. Pain, our pain and hurt is not meaningless. That our pain, your hurt, the things that we go through as, as a church family, as people, it's not meaningless. And I think sometimes we, we think that it is. The context of this book, or as we talk about the book of James, to give you a little bit of context, is James is the half-brother of Jesus. That's who James is. He's the author of this letter. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing this message. Now, this is important. He's writing this message to the church. That's who his audience is, okay? So we have to think through that. What's going on in the church is a lot of things, and just like any church, but they're experiencing a lot of division right now. They're being persecuted. You know, when you get the fire turned up, you get the blowtorch put on your forehead, People start doing weird things, right? Because pain is hard to deal with. And people start asking questions like why, but there's divisions going on in the church. There's divisions because of a lot of things. I think it was Warren Wiersbe that said one of the biggest divisions in the church is people were using careless words. Some just couldn't control their tongue. And we see that in the book of James. A lot of talk about the tongue. We, we see that the divisions are are being exacerbated because these are a people that are on the run. They've been taken out of where they used to live and put in another area. We see that in verse 1, and we'll talk about it. But as we talk about the tongue, I, I remember hearing about this, this country preacher. And this country preacher was dealing with a guy in the church who just had one of those big mouths. You ever know a guy that just has a real big mouth? And this country pastor just got tired of dealing with it. And he says... To this guy named Bobby, he says, Bobby, did I, did I baptize you? And he says, preacher, you did, you did baptize me. And the country preacher thought about it for a moment. He says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we go back down to that riverbank and let me do it one more time because this time I want to make sure I get your tongue baptized because I think you need a little help there. <laughs> and I think sometimes we forget that there's a responsibility in being a Christian it's not just here. I think what Pastor Larry said was exactly right, and it's in the book of James, is we've got to just not be hearers of the word, but we've got to be doers. And doing's the hard part. I think doing's the hard part. It certainly isn't easy for me. I don't know if it's easy for you, but it's not with me. And I would say that every one of these sins that I see in the book of James, I count myself in here. I see myself. I see my tongue. I see all of the things he's dealing with. I see me here. And I hope you see you there as well. In addition to division being caused by careless words and reckless tongues, 
the church was also dealing with worldliness. Same problems that we would deal with today, worldliness. They can give you some context. It would seem that the church was failing to live out what they professed, what they believed. They weren't living out what they said that they believed. And the pastor is now coming in and giving instruction. There's a tremendous amount of spiritual immaturity. These Christians simply were not growing up. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, calls the whole thing uh, be mature, as he's talking about a church who seems to be very immature. And I would certainly see that as well. That's certainly a vein that we see. Certainly a vein that we see. So with that in view, with that as a little bit of context, now I'm going to ask you to stand up and look at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here's what God's Word says. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a joy, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. So he reads God's holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. Verse 1 is important. Is important. It's a deep dive. It's, it's a deep dive. It's a critical component as we get to get an x-ray, if you will, of James's heart. We see in here, as he opens with the words, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't open up by saying, you know, my brother and I, you know, yo, my brother Jesus, yo, Jay, yo, JC. He doesn't do that. I didn't say Jay-Z, I said JC. <laughs> but he introduces himself as a servant. He introduces himself as a slave. That's the introduction, which is critical. What he's really saying is, I fully surrender and will do all that my Master asks of me. That's the connotation. That's what he's saying. Jesus is his brother, yes. But again, in an act, James, in an act of total surrender, in an act of Humility. He refers to Jesus not as my brother, but the Lord. In other words, the Master. He says the Christ, the Messiah. Not just Jesus. He wants everybody to know who He is. This isn't, He's my brother, yes. But this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. James is, comes to this passage, comes to our Lord humbled, He's honored to serve his master, and he delights in being the master's slave. Strong language. Some translations will take it out because the word slave or doulos, it's got a negative connotation. But it's never so when we're talking about the Lord, the perfect one. He delights in being a slave. 
But that's, that wasn't always the case. And I think this will be encouraging for some of you right out of the gate. That wasn't the, that wasn't the case always with James. He didn't come out of the womb as the guy that worshipped Jesus Christ. He didn't come out saying, I will serve you. I will be a slave to you. I will surrender to you. That's not the way it was. James was the guy that would go to the market with Jesus. James was the guy that would play in the sandbox. I mean, he would hang out with him. It was his brother. But you know that he didn't believe. James, there was a time in his life where James did not believe that Jesus Christ was who he said that he was. He thought he was cuckoo. Matter of fact, in John 7, 5, we see these words, for not even his brothers believed in him. For not even his brothers, not even James. James the just. Not even James believed in Jesus. You see, James turned to faith in Christ only after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus had to literally go to him. He was one of the eyewitnesses. He went to his brother and said, it's me. It was then when James trusted Christ, his brother, as his Lord and Savior. Sometimes God will reveal himself in mysterious ways. This time, Jesus just said, look, it's me. You can't dispute it. And he trusted Christ. So again, in verse 1, we see Jesus, I mean James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, who are we writing to? He tells us who he is. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. But now to the twelve tribes dispersed, scattered abroad, greetings, an opening of the letter, an opening of the letter. To those of you who have been dispersed abroad is what the word says. To those of you who have been scattered, I'm writing to the church who has been scattered. But what is James talking about? Acts 7 would give us an account of what he is talking about. You may recall in Acts 7, Stephen was the first martyr. Stephen was stoned to death. Why was was Stephen stoned to death? Because he loved Christ. And he worshipped Him. And he spoke out against the legal system. And you've got to read the book to, to figure it out. But he was martyred. Stephen was martyred for his faith. And after he was martyred in Acts 8, Acts 8, it brings clarity to what happens next. It brings clarity to our passage this morning. So I have to do a cross-reference, but I think it will support you. So in Acts 8, 1-3, after Stephen was martyred, killed, it says this, Acts 8, 1-3, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Same church in James. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. They're scattered. Verse 2. Devout men, they buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, that's Paul, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house and drag men off and women and put them into prison. That is the context. That's what's happening here when we look at verse 1. So we see that severe persecution has obviously broken out. The church and its people were scattered abroad and they were dispersed. They were feeling the pain and the hurt of various trials, just like the Word of God says. They began to wonder, 
I wonder if this is all meaningless. They don't use that word, but they use other words that would bring us to that conclusion. They're wondering, is God even understand what they're going through? Is He even in this with us? Remember, they're not the most mature. And sometimes when we're fearful, sometimes when we're up against it, oftentimes we default to what we know. We just get fear. We get fearful. So I want to cut them some slack. They are immature, but I think we all get fearful. And I think we all retreat and do things we shouldn't do. So maybe we're going to cut them a little bit of slack. Maybe, maybe we're a little bit in here as well. They're certainly in a why God moment at this time in history. You ever been in a why God moment? You ever wonder why? You ever read the newspaper and see something so tragic or turn on the television and see something so tragic or in your own life somebody lets you know something so tragic and you say the words, why God? Not even oftentimes, I'm not saying in a negative way, just Lord, help me to understand process. And sometimes it's a why God? So we can look at it two different ways. But, but G, James provides some clarification to the why God question that you and I seem to face in our own trials. And let's be honest here. Not every trial is as significant. They're different. They, they, they vary, right? Some people think a trial is when they, when they go get Captain Crunch and it's five bucks and they could have got it at another place for three bucks. That's not a trial. So trials, I'm talking about stuff that's significant. Stuff that's weighty. Stuff that hurts. A lot of us ask why. So he, he's giving clarification now. Now the letter is going to start to pop. Okay, Let's look at verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it a great joy, church, people. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and my sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You see, brothers and sisters, according to that text, faith needs to, must, will be tested. The Lord wants to know, is your faith real? Now, He knows. He wants you to know. Is it real? A faith will and needs to be tested. But why? What's the purpose? What's the why? Because testing produces endurance. Testing produces or causes you, the believer, the Christian, to bear fruit. When you're under the weight of something and you press into God, God develops something in you. He develops something in you. You begin to bear fruit. And it's not hard, it's impossible without God. Endurance, as we look at the text here, because he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance is steadfastness. Because while you endure, while you build up, while you're doing these things, what's happening? While you're submitting, while you're surrendering to God through these trials, what's happening? Your faith is being strengthened. Do you really think the enemy wants your faith to be strengthened? Or does he want to keep you immature and full of fear? You see, when we endure, we begin to trust the Lord because we see that He was true there. He'll be true again. 
it would be the equivalent of somebody doing exercises, somebody that hasn't worked out in a long time, but they commit to working out. Like Blake's always bragging on himself about how much he works out. You know, Blake Ryan, he came in today and he's like, look at these guns, Charlie. He really did. And I'm telling on him because I'm uh, insecure people make fun, of, make fun of others, so I'm making fun of him. But I know this about Blake. He really is dedicated to fitness. He wants to run the race. He really, from a spiritual standpoint, he wants to make sure that he's got the endurance to do the things he's been called to do. So I've known Blake for a long time. His arms weren't always that big. I hate to admit that. But he's, when he's doing those curls and things of that nature, he begins to take on more weight, more weight, more weight. It's the same thing. I, I think you get the metaphor. You see, that's what's happening. That's what happens when we endure. That's what happens when God tests us and we're found worthy. We, 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 we grow. We bear fruit. But some would still say, including the book of James, these people, these, this church, and maybe me, maybe you, why God? Why the trials? Why the pain? Just why? God does things that you and I may not understand. There's lots of things we understand about God. But we don't always understand why He does things in the manner to which He does. We know ultimately to bring glory to Himself. We know that. You know, the chief aim of man is to bring glory to Christ. We know those types of things. We don't always understand what He's doing, how He's doing it, how it's going to end, right? But I would say, according to the text here, it's easy to understand what He's doing what he's doing to the church, the purpose of the trials, what he's doing to the Christians. He wants them to be mature. The trials are given to the church, given to the people of the church, so that they would be mature in their faith, that they would be made complete, that they would lack nothing. It's the sanctification process. God is saying, I want to be a part of that in your life. I want to see you grow. I want to see you mature. Mature, Christ, mature Christians, they get things done. Mature Christians hear the Word of God and respond to the Word of God. Right? And mature Christians are sobered. I remember just literally, I think it was yesterday, the day before. It might have been yesterday. I went through a box of old photos. You ever do that? Look at your kids and see how skinny you used to be and see your hair used to be a different color. You ever do that? So here I am looking through all these these pictures. And boy, the years go by fast. Any parents say amen? And I saw pictures of our children. We have four children and you know, three are married now. But I saw pictures of my kids on big wheels. I saw pictures of my kids uh, and, and, and Power Ranger outfits. I saw one picture of my, my little precious daughter, Taylor. We even snapped a shot of her going potty. <laughs> now, I didn't do it. I don't think Louise did it. I'm going to blame it on her grandparents, but somebody did it. But I got a picture of that. But we also started to notice that there were other pictures, and we saw pictures of high school and prom and all those types of things that go along with it. The, the years, they just, you start to see a difference in the kids. They're no longer little babies anymore. I saw pictures of Candace in there like 10 years ago. But things had changed. A lot of stuff had changed. 
But you see, if we go back to that potty for a second, I'm pretty sure that if I was there, my wife was there, my grandparents were there, I'm pretty sure we would have looked Taylor right in the eye and we would have said, hey, good job, way to use the potty. That's good, right? That's a good thing. Now, but now that she's, you know, got three kids, if I went up to her now and said, hey, sweetheart, good job, you know, way to use the potty, she, she would be a little concerned with dad, <laughs> right? And she should be. But, but, but let me just let, translate this for a second. Like, but we kind of do that in the church a little bit, don't we? We say stuff like this. Oh, man, I like to use the word, use the word Earl because nobody will figure out who I'm talking about. But, you know, Earl, man, that, that dude's a, he's just so faithful. He comes to church every Sunday. Okay, cool. Yeah, old Bob, man, he, he, he's a good one. He only comes 50% of the time, but when he comes, man, he's like, he's in that thing. Or, or, or we say, man, I, I know you, <laughs> you haven't memorized any scripture, or not, you've been a Christian for 30 years, but man, praise God, man, way to go. I know I still got a spoon to feed you. I know you can't handle conflict on your own. I know that every time you get your feelings hurt, you, you leave. Is that immaturity? But in the church, we coddle people like that. Now, I think we should love people like that because we're all there. But, but would you agree that if, if my daughter is, how old is my daughter, 26? Something like that. But in the same manner that I would brag on her for going to the bathroom, we kind of do that in the church and just draw the conclusions. We want to love people and meet people where they're at, but, but sometimes we've got to turn up the intensity a little bit and say, look, you need to grow. So I want you, as I give you that illustration, that metaphor, that's also what's in view here. So I'm just trying to set up the book of James for you guys. That's something that's in view. It's in view. So trials and temptations according to the Word of God are both inevitable and God intends both to deepen our faith. That the trials are meant to do something. Again, you know what it is. It's meant to mature you. It's so important that we grab this. Some people have a theological construct that would say when something is happening to you like a trial, then maybe perhaps you are in sin. Uh, you know, maybe you haven't done something and it starts to get really legalistic. It's not what God's Word says. But God's Word is telling us here that every Christian is going to go through a trial. And He's not just saying <coughs> go through one trial. Various trials, like numerous trials, different things, right? So we have to think about that. So He's saying you're going to get it. If you're one of God's kids, you're going to get it. He chastens those that He loves. He brings trials in. They're a blessing to develop you to mature you. God tests our faith to see if we are genuine by the trials He allows into our life. We're not to run from them. And they hurt. And most people don't pray the prayer, oh God, give me more trials. That's not what's in view here. But we have this Advocate. Various trials, the Scripture says. They keep coming. It never stops. Just like the psalmist as he talks about the waves crashing. You ever read the Psalms? Ever read how raw and full of emotion they are? You think about how God is secure in who He is. Why would God allow some of this stuff in the Bible? As we see people like David or Asaph or the psalmist as they begin to talk about their lives and 
many of the Psalms, they start off with, oh God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on here? My enemies, they surround me. And this, this person is pouring out their heart and it's messy and it's ugly. And they're just like letting it rip. And then somewhere near the end, but oh God, you are who you say that you are. Oh, how I love you. But you ever see what was in between all that? Why would God allow that? Because God knows us. We are that. He's secure in who He is. And He loves us in spite of it. Does it one psalm? Doesn't it say something along these lines? God, Yahweh, darkness is my only friend. The, the, the psalmist says that. In other words, you've abandoned me. I'm alone. Look at me. Why would God allow His people to talk like that? Oh, brothers and sisters, He is a patient and loving God. He tests our faith by trials. He's patient with us when we're afflicted and we don't understand. The waves keep coming. Brothers and sisters, have you ever felt I know Ann Pettigrew has. I know Ron Gallerini has. I know Bonnie Schuf has. I'm talking about deep pain. Ever been in such an emotional or physical agony that you just had to fall on your knees? And when you got to your knees, ready to beg God to help you in whatever the calamity was, that the words wouldn't even come out. Have anybody ever been there before? Like, I don't even know what to say. Have you been there? I have. Have you, like me, like many in the New Testament and Old, said, God, why? Why? Why would you allow such a thing? Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you love? That you trusted? Do you know what it's like to suffer the loss of a spouse? Have you been there? Have you felt that sting? To watch your own child or grandchild suffer through a terminal disease and you prayed for this child. And you watch this child, skin and bones, from ages two to four, throw up in a toilet. And you're in agony because you can't help. And you pray. And you bring the preacher over. And they pray. And they beg God to heal. And the child dies anyways. Have you, have you felt that pain? Have you, have you ever walked into the house of a widow after her husband died by suicide? deep. It's pain. I guess what I'm trying to say is, have you ever felt the sting of a significant loss? You ever felt that? Jesus did. Jesus felt it. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Judas loved money more than anything else and was willing to do anything to get his hands on money, including selling out Jesus. He was betrayed. Peter was 
personally trained and discipled by Jesus. However, Peter had this pattern of always running his mouth and getting himself into trouble, doing stupid things, even after he was warned. He turned his back on the Lord. Jesus felt the sting of a loss, a significant loss, as Mary and Martha brought on the news of Lazarus. Remember that account? He's dead, Jesus. He's dead. Where were you? You could, have, you, could have, you could have done something about it. Where were you? People are hurting and they're grieving. And they say things. They're perplexed. They're hurting. He knows the condition of their heart. You just would have got here sooner, God. This, this wouldn't have happened. Why, God? What are you, what are you, what, what are you doing? God, you, you, you can raise him to life. Why? Scripture teaches us in John 11 that Jesus, on the account of Lazarus, He didn't immediately start telling them. Mary and Martha didn't say, hey look, it's okay. I, you know, there's a purpose in this. There's, there's a greater purpose in this. He, he, he didn't do that. He could have. You want to know what He did? While they were asking the why question, Jesus comforted them. And He wept with them. That's what Jesus did. He comforted them. You want a pattern for how to deal with loss? Wouldn't Jesus be a good pattern? There'd be some that would say this, yeah, but preacher, you know, the God I serve, He's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Remember that? True. But I want you to think about how God deals with His kids. Yeah, He chastens those that He loves. He tells us to examine ourselves deeper in the faith. He tests us. But I see a theme in the Gospels. I see a theme in the New Testament. Grace and truth. I see a theme where Jesus would bring law to the proud and grace to the humble. That's the pattern of God. Grace. Not all grace. Not sloppy grace. Law to the proud. Grace to the humble. Grace in truth is how God deals with His people. Brothers and sisters, in James 1, this is not an easy text. I don't think these people said, this is really awesome. Tell us more. We love your 58 imperatives. <laughs> the to-do list is pretty significant here. Remember, imperatives are commands. It's, it's, it's like, you need to do this, is what James is saying. He confronted them. But why would he do that? Why would he confront them? I mean, why did he, sorry, not confront them. Why did he comfort them? Why did he do it that way? Why did he weep with them? Because the Bible teaches us in Romans 12, 15 that we need to be people who rejoice with those who rejoice. I rejoice with Josh and Tamina Abney and their son. I rejoice in their sons. Like, I celebrate that. I, I'm actually jacked up about that they've dedicated their child. I believe them when they say we're going to raise our children in the way of the Lord because I know them. 
They've been in my home. We've had dinner together. I know them. I trust them. They're not perfect, but I love them. I want to rejoice with them. And I also, when calamity comes, when trials come in Josh's life, I want to weep with him. I want Josh to weep with me because he's part of my family. You see, sometimes, brothers and sisters, please listen to me. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is just to cry with one another. Sometimes that's the most spiritual thing we can do, is to cry with one another. Who's the audience? The church. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we could do is stop asking why and start asking how can we do this trial together? I see you're hurting. Can I be there for you? Can I come alongside of you? I love you. You want to talk about the, the you want to talk about walls being just busted down? When you open up your conversation with this, where's Aunt, where's uh, Faye? Faye, come here, hun. If I went to Miss, if Faye was on her, come, come here, Miss Faye. If Faye, if Faye was on her, uh, and I don't, not there's no prophecy here, hun. If Faye was on her deathbed, and I got news, she would tell me last because she wants me to go minister, a little stinker. But if I went into her hospital bed and I saw her laying there the first thing I would say to Miss Faye is, Faye, I love you. I love you, right? And, and let's just say she, she's never mad at me, but let's say she was a little mad at me. All the walls are going down. We're just in this thing together. I love Miss Faye. She's my black mama. <laughs> I love you. But Faye and I have a special relationship. But I love her. And we love people. People know it. And, and, and James loves these people. They know it. But he still has to speak a tough word. He still has to answer the why questions that we all deal with. Verse 5 says this, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him or her. Like these trials that we go through, there are going to be things that we don't understand. They're not going to always make sense. Some of them do, some of them don't. We are going to ask why. We may not are going to understand all the time. And God is saying, it's okay. I want you to call on me. I want you to come to me. I want you to seek me for guidance. I want to be in this with you. If you lack wisdom, he should ask God. I wonder what that means in the Greek. I think it means ask God. Would it be safe to say that some trials are so big that they're way over our heads? Sometimes we don't even know where to begin. Some trials are just enormous. Too enormous for us to handle on our own. But God says, ask me. Call to me. Pray to me. Bring me in on your trial. I do not want you to solve it on your own. Call on me. I'm not going to shortchange you. I care about you. 
I'm going to supply your every need. He's going to give you spiritual wisdom. And He's going to remind us in that day of agony, that day of what we think is lack, in that trial where we're getting grinded down. He's going to remind us that we have this Holy Spirit that dwells within us. The Counselor who's going to help us through the trial. We start getting reminded of who He is when we go to Him. As we go away from Him, we start to forget who He is and what He's done. He's saying, call on Me. James is dealing with the people who are facing various trials. Some of their trials have been brought on by pure hatred of their enemies. Yes. Some of their trials have been self-inflicted as they've lacked faith. They've lacked endurance. They've been immature. We even see that there was one, there's a part in, in James 2 where the church is showing favoritism to rich people. There was a caste system going on. They're doing nutty things. They, they can't seem to control their mouths. James is dealing with the people who failed to live out what they say they believe. They say one thing, but their lives seem to be far from it. Not a lot of fruit. James is dealing with immature Christians. These Christians are not maturing. They're they're not growing up. They're still sitting on the metaphorical potty. Hence, the theme that runs through this book would be spiritual maturity. That's why there's so many commands. Like, just do this. James says, you will experience various. You will experience various and numerous trials. James says, you will be tested. You will be put through the fire. James teaches us what God says to us. That God is going to see you through the trials. He's going to see you through the pain. That it's not going to be meaningless. He's going to remind them in this letter to do with your church family. Don't do it alone. Give it to God, yes, but do it with your family. God is going to do something with all of the pain is what James is saying. Brothers and sisters, trials don't always come from the outside. Sometimes the trials, they come from the inside. It's an inside job. You know, when the devil starts to whisper in your ear, feeding you a line of garbage saying it's hopeless. God has abandoned you. What's the use? You know, you hear things when you're, when you're going through it. The whispers, they say things like run away, give up, don't even risk being heard again. The voices intensify. You're not even making a difference. No one knows who you are. You're tired. This isn't the time for you to step up. This is the time for you to step out. Don't press in. Move away. Don't engage. It's only for a season. Oh, the lies of the devil. The voices continue. You don't believe me? The devil tells you. Call your friend. It's always the most immature friend. Call that person. The person you know will support you in your negligence, not the one that would boo you up and point you to Scripture. Call your friend. You justify your decision. The voices shout in times of despair. 
yeah, why don't you just kill yourself and that'll take away all the pain. You see, these voices tell us to do things. And sometimes the truth has been squashed out by a lie. And the enemy takes another one down. Is this resonating with you? My Bible teaches me this, and so does yours. Your affliction, your pain, your hurt, your circumstance may seem like God has abandoned you. It may seem that way. It may feel that way. But it doesn't make it true. The Word of God is emphatically clear that He has not and He will not abandon one of His kids. The trials are how He trains us, His people, His kids, on how to depend on Him. Because with each trial, you will grow. You will never be the same after you go through the trial, when you're uncoiled, uncorked, and you go through it, you're never the same. You grow. The trials are not meaningless. They're doing something in all of us. You and I will be put through the fire just like those little Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who was in the furnace with them? Old Testament, Christ. Interesting. Would it be applicable to draw upon that verse as a cross-reference for a season such as this? Yes, it would. You're not alone. I'm with you in the fire. Literally. You see, when we're immature in our faith, we start to see trials this way. Maybe God's mad at me. Maybe God's done with me. Is God done with you? No. Maybe God has forsaken me. Brothers and sisters, it's the complete opposite. The Bible is clear. You will be tested and put through life's furnace. Period. I want to read something to you. Part of a sermon from John Piper as he talks about affliction. Listen. Not only is all of your affliction momentary, not only is your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain, from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the, in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless it's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what God is doing. Don't look to what the don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, 
when your kid dies, when, you're, when you got cancer at 40, when your car careens into the sidewalks and takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you in eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with the confidence that you are new and that you are cared for. Do we believe that? Brothers and sisters, we are needy recipients of God's grace. Every single one of us. All of us. We're broken. Some would say, well, you're not broken. When you're in Christ, you're not broken anymore. You've been made new. Of course I believe that. But I also believe God's word, the sanctification process, says we're going to get rocked. But we don't do it alone. Chastens those that he loves. He puts us through things. We're not always being chastened because of something we did. But sometimes he just uses those things to grow us in maturity. We have hope today because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died so that we may live. The Bible teaches us that Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. The hope of what? That Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Someone's lost. It's not Jesus. He's come into this world to redeem us, to ransom us, to give us a hope. A hope to whom? To those who repent and believe the good news. He will save. And after we're saved, it is warfare. If today you find yourself under the weight of a significant trial, you're not alone. If today you're feeling the pain or the sting of life, you're not alone. What you're going through is not meaningless. God is not going to waste the hurt. But we must also understand that this earth is not your home. That as a believer, there is always going to be this longing for heaven. We're to long for it in these aches and pains. It reminds us of a fallen world. The Bible teaches us that the earth is under a curse. That, that, the Bible teaches that we were, we were meant to live, not die. You know that, right? We're meant to live, not die. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus stood over the body of his friend Lazarus, Jesus wept. Not because he didn't have the power to resurrect him. He did resurrect him. You know that, right? Four days later, he resurrected him. It's not why he was weeping. Maybe he wept for a lot of reasons. Maybe he wept because he loved him. 
Maybe he wept, wept because he loved Mary and Martha. Maybe he wept because he had compassion. Maybe he wept because he saw the consequence of sin. What a consequence of sin. Death. We're meant to live. To live for Him. Now. If we love Him, we will obey Him. We will go through the trials because a genuine faith acts out of obedience. A genuine faith responds to the hearing of the Word even if it's painful and it costs us something. What do you need to respond to on this Lord's Day? What is the Word of God teaching you? What is the Spirit that dwells within you asking you to do? What is your call to action? Romans 8, 28 says this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who were called according to His purpose. Do you believe that? Jared Wilson, who committed suicide on Monday, was baptized in this church. He was a skinny little kid. Played the drums. I've got pictures of him. I pulled them up. That's why I was looking through the photos. I didn't keep contact with with Jared. But it hurt me. And the first thing that I thought when I got the news, I was just stunned. I knew that I couldn't change that action. But I was overwhelmed with compassion for his wife and his babies. As I began to think, oh God, what do I, what do I do? I don't, I don't really know them. I, I, what do I, what do we? God help me. Would you give me? How do I? There were many different ways that people in our church chose to respond. Everybody has their reasons for the way that they responded. All of them perhaps justified, perhaps. I asked Dr. Jim Wilson to lunch on Thursday, grieve. I said, Wilson, what do I, what do I, what do I even do? He said, Charlie, before I ask you, what do you do? How are you doing? Are you okay? He taught me something in that moment that 
Sometimes we just need to push past trying to solve problems. And How are you? He just wanted to love on me. Sometimes the most compassionate thing that we can do with one another is just to cry. That's where we're at on that. Wilson's a southern boy. He's from Texas. He says, you know, Charlie, I know that people can do some wild things on social media. He says, you know, you know back when I was a young preacher, we kind of told things differently. There wasn't any social media. We just, when somebody in the church had something significant like that, man, uh, our ladies just got to work and we started baking casseroles. I mean, does a casserole bring back a person? Does a casserole resurrect the four-year-old that died of cancer? Sometimes we don't know what to do. But when we love people, we're going to do something. When Jared passed away, the first person I called upon was the Lord. I said, Lord, help me. Help me. Tell me what to do. I suspect if more people did that, some of the stuff that wasn't so helpful wouldn't have happened. I just know this. They will know you by the way that you love one another. And maybe a day or two after somebody passes, maybe that's not the time to start getting into theological discussion. Maybe it's just a time to weep. Brothers and sisters, if we can shift past that subject, there are subjects to which we have got to ensure truth is proclaimed. We must not back down from truth. But there's a way in which Jesus dispensed truth. Law to the proud. Grace to the humble. Let it be said of us that as you post anything on social media, that if those breadcrumbs come back to Lakeshore City Church, we will have a conversation with you. I just want our community to know this. We are faithful to the gospel, that one must repent and believe the gospel. We are going to preach truth the way that it ought to be preached. We're not going to monkey around on things that we should be monkeying around on. We're going to be firm. We will not waver. We will not bend our knee to the bail of this world. But by golly, we are going to do it with class. We're going to do it with dignity. We're going to do it in a way that honors Jesus Christ.
let that be said of you. Let us think about those who are afflicted in our city, outside of our city, the person that maybe you're thinking about, and go to God and say, how do you want me to respond? And if you do that, no matter what it is, I praise God because I know it will be the right thing. Amen? Would you let me pray for you?